you have a Bible with you, it would be a really good time to open it to Romans chapter 7, and we're going to look at verses 21 to 25. I am going to get us into Romans 8 next week, but I feel like I need to do a little more groundwork and preparation for us to really benefit from the message of hope in chapter 8 by still considering together the struggle that is normative for believers in Christ. I've taken the position that this particular passage addresses not a newbie, not a new believer, not a baby Christian, not a, an inconsistent Christian, but rather a mature believer struggling with the uh, residing remnants of indwelling sin within us and the battle with the flesh. And today, so the focus of our attention today is going to be on the flesh and how the flesh operates in our spiritual experience even today. So hear now the word of the Lord as we begin reading in Romans chapter 7, picking up with verse 21. For I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. This is God's word. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, as we open up this word, we pray that the one who breathed it out the one who inspired it, uh, the one who moved men of old to record uh, the words of men moved by the Spirit as the Word of God. And we thank you that this Word is alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, and we pray that it would find its way past our defenses, past our deception, past our uh, aloofness and our arrogance and our autonomy and find its way into our hearts. And this we pray for the one who preaches as well as for the one who hears your word today. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now to cut to the chase, what my goal is today is to talk about the cravings of the flesh, the sinful nature that Paul calls a law or a principle that remains in our physical body. That's its location. And it will be with us until we die. And this flesh is antithetical to the spirit. It's antithetical to our new nature. It's in opposition. It resists. It responds, it creates within us over-desires, epithumia. We talked about that last week, over-desires. John Calvin, who was brilliant, said this. He said, Esse idolorum 
fabricum. That's Latin, by the way. Esse is idolorum, idols, fabricum, factory. The flesh or the heart of man is an idol factory. If there's one thing that we're proficient in, it's making idols and listening to idols and being seduced to idols. And this is not just an unbeliever problem. This is an everybody problem. And so when we look at ways to try to organize, I, I, like, I like systems, I like to think in big picture terms, and when I take the scriptures in my hands and I look at scripture, um, you, could, you could say that some of the themes that seem to hold the Bible together would be things like covenant or things like kingdom. Uh, and so we're kind of afraid to pick one or the other because of the possibility of reductionism. But I would say that massive chunks of the Bible, both Old and New Testament, deal with this issue of idolatry. As a matter of fact, it was the undoing of the people of God under the Old Covenant. They were always uh, suffering because of their infidelity uh, to the covenant commitment to love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength in their neighbor as themselves. However, one of the way, main ways the Bible uh, speaks is as the age-long struggle between true faith and idolatry. In the beginning, human beings were made to worship the Lord and to serve him and to rule over everything that he had created in this world. But instead of living that way, Paul understands humanity's original sin as an act of idolatry. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator. Instead of living for God, we began to live for ourselves or for our work or for our material goods. We reversed the original intended order and when we began to worship and serve created things, paradoxically, the created things came to rule over us. And so I happen to believe, I will take Calvin's statement that the heart is an idol factory to refer mainly to the flesh that remains in us. And the struggle between the flesh and the new creature and the spirit, they lust against one another. There is a warfare inside, and that inside warfare stems from the result of our hearts leaving or turning away from our Lord and worshiping and serving other gods. Now think about that for a moment. You got Ten Commandments in the Bible, right? Luther was brilliant about this. Luther understood that there are Ten Commandments in the Bible. But one-fifth of the law of God to humanity, commandment number one and commandment number two, has to do with idolatry. You shall have no other gods before my face, God says to his people. You are to have no other gods. And Martin Luther argued that the reason why we break commandment three through commandment ten is because we break commandment number one first. 
because it is a covenantal and relational commandment. God made us for himself. He made us for his glory. And our life is entirely out of whack because we don't do that. You know, it's, it's like trying to uh, uh, hammer a nail with my watch. Let's say that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to beat a nail in the wall and I have the option of a hammer, which was made to do that, and I have my watch here, and let's say I attempt to hammer the nail with the watch. What's going to happen? Nothing except tear my watch up, right? It'll totally destroy my watch. The purpose of my watch is to keep time. It is not to hammer nails. And you were made for the purpose to be like a hammer to nail. And what that means is you were made to love God and serve him and know him and find in him your life. And everything else outside of that is death. Idolatry always leads to death. It promises you the world. It promises you great glory. It promises to fulfill every need of your life. But it's a liar. The flesh is a liar and a deceiver. The heart of man is deceitful, beyond cure, beyond knowledge. Who can know it? The scriptures tell us. And yet at the same time, idolatry is a problem that we all have. I've heard some people say that Christians can't be idolaters. Well, Paul wrote a letter to the church at Colossae, and he said to them, naming the works of darkness and of the flesh that they need to avoid, and he mentioned the last one, coveting, which he said is idolatry. Apparently, Paul thought Christians could fall into idolatry. So what I want to do this morning is what the outline says. I want to sort of begin to move toward the goal of our understanding that the flesh itself is the idol factory in us. And this has to do with motivational levels of life. Not just outward external behavior, but rather the workings of the heart. Understanding the nature of your heart. And the nature of our heart apart from the redemptive work of Christ on our behalf, regeneration, indwelling by the Spirit, left to ourselves, we are suckers for idols. We just are. We're born one born every minute. Nobody gets into this world without the flesh. It's part and parcel of living in this body. And it's always a challenge. And it is a snare that is, the first two commandments, the most basic law, one-fifth of God's revelation of his law to humanity is against idolatry. Exodus, doesn't Exodus does not envision any other third option between true faith and idolatry. We will either worship and serve the uncreated God or we will worship and serve the created thing, an idol. There is no possibility of our worshiping nothing. We would cease to be if we worship nothing. We are made to be worshiping creatures. We are made to find life outside of ourselves. We are made to connect to something that will give us life. We are insufficient of ourselves. We do not have the self-existence of God as part of the image of God in our being. God is the only one who is self-existent and self-sufficient. We are not. 
We find our being in him. He is the source of all being, and he made us for himself. And if we're not connecting to him, we're not giving him worship, we're not seeing his glory, we're not delighting ourselves in him, we're not relishing the the wonderful privilege it is to know him, our life suffers. You know, we're like the writer to the Ecclesiastes. We go out and we try everything under the sun to find life. And we keep hitting our head against the wall. And insanity is doing the same thing over and over, expecting different results, right? And why we think we can find life outside of the source of life, I often argue with myself, is ridiculous. But we are covenantal creatures. And I wanted to read something from a guy by the name of Michael Babbock, who is... uh, had written a doctrinal thesis on the sin underneath every sin, the sin of idolatry. And rather than read it, I think I'm just going to have to tell you from memory what it is because somebody stole it out of my notebook. Somebody's always doing it. Here it is. (laughs) This is worth listening to. I don't like being read to generally. This is worth being read to. He's talking about the biblical theology of idolatry, and he says, at the end of Exodus 20 through 23, the Lord says, you shall make no covenant with them, that is pagan people, or with their gods. Paul says unbelievers worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. Man cannot escape his covenantal nature. Worship and service are inseparable. We must worship something. We must serve something. No more explicit statement of man's allegiance to his idols could be made. Paul describes the unbeliever as one in slavery to sin. False service or slavery is thought of as emerging with a a covenant with false gods. The warning again, making a covenant with a false god, presumes a comparison with the true covenant. In the Sinaitic covenant of Exodus 20, there is A, a command to love. Exodus 20, uh, verse 3 demands you shall have no other gods before me. The sanctions, Exodus 20, promises blessing or curses depending on our response to the covenant. Now, unbelief, or that is anti-faith, is an expression of a covenant with idols. All sin involves idolatry in one way or another. Although it may not be immediately obvious, sin does not occur in a vacuum. Despite our inability to fathom the depth of sin, we can describe it more accurately once we recognize our covenantal nature. One's life as an unbeliever is organized around idolatry. Any theory of human nature which discusses the why aspect of behavior wrestles with the question of motivation. What if... A person, what is a person really after? Why is he really after it? A covenant servant expects blessings and avoids curses by serving his God. Without rooting our view of human nature in the covenant, we will never be able to adequately describe human motivation. We will only see a collection of desires rather than an expression of a comprehensive covenant. Every time, we turn from the Lord and we trust in our idols. We are entering into covenant with a false God. 
which is really no God at all. But we convince ourselves that we'll be blessed if we turn and look at this idol to comfort us and give us life. All we ever get out of it is death. But we're covenantal. That's how we're made. That's how we're structured. And so we enter into a covenant of works with our idols and hope that our idols will justify us. That is why Martin Luther argues that the commandment against idolatry in the Old Testament in Exodus 23 is exactly the same as the commandment in the New Testament describing the reality of justification by faith alone, through grace alone, and Christ alone. Every time I worship an idol, every time I trust an idol, I'm trying to get justified. I'm trying to get approval. I'm trying to get acceptance. I'm trying to find life. I'm looking for acceptability. I want to be presentable before the world. I want to be righteous, not self-righteous, not persnickety righteousness, but rather I want to be seen as validated. And so I looked to the idols to give me the righteousness my heart was made for, and they never deliver. They only plunge us down more and more and more. So idolatry in the Bible is a huge subject, and it would take several Sundays to even scratch the surface, but what I wanted to do today is move us forward in this discussion of the idols of the heart. Idols of the heart are portrayed for us in the book of Ezekiel, chapter one, verse, uh, uh, chapter fourteen, verses one through eight. Idolatry is the characteristic summary in the Old Testament for our drift from God. Then, lust, inordinate desires, epithumia, is the characteristic and summary uh, New Testament word for that same drift where epithumia is the catch-all for what is wrong with us. The tenth commandment against coveting, which is idolatrous, inordinate desire for something, also makes sin psychodynamic. It lays bare the grasping and demanding nature of the human heart, as Paul powerfully describes it in Romans 7. And so when we talk about this particular truth, I wanted to sort of reduce it down <laughs> to the four things I have in the bulletin. Let's look at the first one. What are idols? What is the definition of an idol? Romans 1:25 tells us that idols are not sinful things, but good and basic things, elevated into being ultimate things. Worship and serve created things rather than the creator. Creation itself is a good thing. But it is not to be the object of our worship. And so we look to them for meaning in life, for covering our sense of insignificance, for developing a validating righteousness or worth. David Martin Lloyd-Jones, who I quote seems like every week, said this, An idol is anything in our lives that occupies the place that should be occupied by God alone. Anything that is central in my life, anything that seems to me essential. An idol is anything by which I live and on which I depend and hope. Anything that holds such a controlling position in my life that it moves and rouses and attracts so much of my time, my attention, my energy, and my resources or money. That's what an idol is. 
An idol is when you're by yourself, when you're alone, where does your mind go? What is it you really, really want? What is it you're even tempted to use Jesus to get? That's what Jonathan Edwards said. I remember the first time I ever read that, I'd never heard about anybody talking about using God. The Bible addresses idols as our belly. And by belly, doesn't mean what I have around the middle. It means what? A belly means appetites, cravings, lust. That's what that is. And so an idol is anything in creation we inflate or rise up. Others have said uh, more things about idols, but that's what one is. Um, Stephen Sharnock, who is a Puritan, in case you want some uh, validation from that era, says this. Each person acts as if God could not make him happy without the addition of something else. Thus the glutton makes a god of his dainties, the ambition man of his honor, the incontinent man of his lust, the covetous man of his wealth, and consequentially esteems them as the chiefest good and the most noble end to which he directs his thoughts. All men, Sharnock says, worship some golden calf set up by education, custom, natural inclination, and the like. When a general is taken, the army runs. Even so, this main idol is the great stream and other sins but rivulets which bring supply. This is the strongest chain wherein the devil holds the man, the man first. Stevie was pretty bright, wasn't he? And he knew what he was talking about. David... Uh, Pallison, who I, I absolutely love, uh, said this, Sin predisposes us to want to be independent to God, of God, to be laws unto ourselves, or autonomous, so that we can do what we want without bowing to his authority. At the most basic level, idols are what we make out of the evidence for God within ourselves and in the world. If we do not ward uh, do not want to face the face of God himself in his majesty and holiness. Rather than looking to the creator and having to deal with his lordship, we orient our lives toward the creation where we can be more free to control and shape our lives in a desired direction. Since we were made to relate to God but do not want to face him and let him control and shape us, thus we forever inflate things in the world to religious proportions to fill the vacuum left by God's exclusion. You can't help yourself. If you're not finding it from God, you're looking everywhere else. You can't help yourself. That's what the fall has done to us all. And so idols are, that's pretty much the description I want to give you. I'll be a little more concrete as we go further in the message. But the motivation of why we have idols is because although we knew God, we did not glorify him as God or give him thanks, and we turned away. And so let's look at uh, the next point, which is not why we have them, but uh, how they affect us. First, idols distort our thinking. They distort our thinking. 
Idols create a delusional field, a whole set of assumptions and false definitions of success and failure, which are distortions of reality brought on by the idol. Their thinking became futile, Paul says, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Your idols define good and evil in ways contrary to God's definition. They spin out a whole false belief system. They establish a locus of control that is earthbound, either in its objects, lust for money, other people, a need to please my father or myself, attainment of my personal goals. Such false gods create false laws, false definitions of success and failure, of values and stigma, idols promise blessings, warn, warn of curses for those who succeed or fail their standards. If I make enough money, if I can get these certain people to like and respect me, then my life will be validated. Now, here's what I want you to get about idolatry. I'm not talking about craving evil, wicked, sinful things. It's good things that God made that we want. And that have an appropriate place in our lives. But it is loving and pursuing those things in the place of God in a way that's totally disconnected from his lordship in our lives. And so the idols of our heart create not only a delusional field and distorted thinking, but they also create emotional bondage. Romans 1.25 tells us that each idol darkens the heart and enslaves us, worshiping and serving created things. Whatever we worship, we must serve. The way the idol enslaves us is that it creates over-desires and inordinate longings. We've talked about that. But these idolatrous cravings from the flesh are the sin underneath every sin. One of the things that we have noticed with Jesus and we have noticed with the scriptures is that outward or external behavior does not save your day and does not save you. That underneath it all there are motivations. The motivational level of the heart. Why we do what we do. What's driving us. What we're really looking for. What we really want. And so we take those desires and attempt to meet them. And it may be a very legitimate desire. It may be something that is, is, is perfectly appropriate to desire in a way that's still in submission to God. So with these idolatrous desires in our heart, uh, we have to ask the question, uh, this means then uh, that idolatry is always the reason we ever do anything wrong. Why do we lie? Or why do we fail to love? Or why do we fail to keep promises? Or live unselfishly? Of course, the general answer is because we're weak and sinful. But the specific answer is always that something besides Jesus that you feel you must have to be happy, something that is more important to your heart than God, something that is spinning out a delusional field and enslaving the heart through inordinate desires, that's what's killing you. And so David Pallison says, the secret to change is always first to identify the idols of the heart. And so, uh, one of the ways that we learn to identify 
idols of the heart, and I'm, I'm getting down to making things more concrete. What I'm giving you is sort of a biblical theology of idolatry. I'm giving you sort of how the motivational system operates and works in us. But what does it look like? How do I know I'm serving an idolatry pastor? Give me an example. Thank you for asking because I'm going to. <laughs> You know, it's not easy to preach. It's challenging. Uh, and the older you get, you think you'd get better, don't you? <laughs> but uh, the Lord is gracious. Here we go. One of the ways that I identify idols in my own heart, and I have them. And let me also tell you, don't go on an idol hunt. Don't spend your whole life trying to figure out what idol you're dealing with today. The Lord will make it clear. The Holy Spirit will show you, I mean, underline it three times in bold face print. This is your idol. Repent. So we don't have to go idol hunting. They're there. But problem emotions help us identify idols. Every self exists in relation to values perceived as making life worth living. A value is anything good in the created order, any idea, relation, object, or person in which one has an interest and from which one derives significance. These values compete. In time, one is prone to choose a center of value by which other values are judged. And which comes to exercise power or preeminence over the other values. When a finite value has been elevated to centrality and imagined as a final source of meaning, then one has chosen a God, little g, a God. One has a God when a finite value is viewed as that without which one cannot receive life joyfully. To be worshipped as a god, something must be sufficiently good. So um, that's sort of the heart of the nature. But let's talk about problem emotions that stem from idolatry. Number one, anxiety deals with idolatry and the future. Anxiety becomes neurotically intensified to the degree that I have idolized finite values. Suppose my God is sex, or my physical health, or the Democratic Party, or the Republican Party. If I experience any of these under genuine threat, then I feel myself shaken to the depths. You know what anxiety is, often. It's nothing more than the response of the heart to unbelief. It is being brought to the position of seeing, I can lose everything over this. And it becomes a state of existence for many people, and help is needed, no doubt. But anxiety, I'm not saying it's the only source of anxiety. I'm not that stupid. But I am saying that it is a source of much anxiety, at least that I feel is I forget God and I begin to look at other things and begin to reason from those other things back to myself and say, well, you know, life might just might not be worth living. If I can't have that, if I can't be that, if I don't get that from other people, life is just, it's over, practically over. Guilt, bitterness, 
deals with idolatry and the past. Guilt becomes neurotically intensified to the degree that I have idolized finite values. Suppose I value my ability to teach and communicate clearly. If clear communication has become an absolute value for me, a center of value that makes all the other values valuable, then I, if I fail at teaching well or communicating well, I am stricken with neurotic guilt. That's why I want to resign as a pastor every Monday morning. Yeah, I do. I don't do it, but I, I, have, I have that because I put too much too much into preaching the perfect sermon or, or it's just it's just a drive in me and it gets out of control where it just consumes me and I may preach something and feel like I just want to run get in the car and get out of here so I don't have to talk to anybody don't you ever do anything like that or think of doing something like that that's because I'm elevating a, fi a finite value to infinite status. What is it at the end of the day that makes me okay? Nothing I do. It is the imputed righteousness of Jesus is my life. You see that? That's the point. And so, we can have these feelings. Uh, by the way, codependency. We, we hear a lot about codependency in this day and time. And David Pallison is really good to read on codependency. And somewhere in this, I have something somewhere he said. Or I'll just tell you what he said. He said, when it comes to codependency, what we need to do is... Uh, um, Drop the codependency and recognize it's downright idolatry. I mean, we can, we can have a loved one in our life who we are so devoted to that it ends up becoming, we become almost a martyr to live for that person we're so devoted to that we end up making that person an idol in our, no person can be your God. No person has the capacity to meet the needs that only God can meet. Don't marry somebody thinking they're going to meet all your needs. They will not, ever. And I married a really good woman. I got way beyond what I deserved when I got her, which told me I was a really good communicator and con man. <laughs> <laughs> and there is a line between that and preaching. You know that right but she's not my God she can't be my God she's finite she's got her own struggles but I want to tell you that's idolatry that's how it works itself out uh, boredom emptiness is idolatry in the present to be bored is to feel empty meaningless boredom is an anticipatory form of being dead to the extent to which limited values are exalted to idolatries, when any of these values are lost, boredom becomes pathological and compulsive. My subjectively experienced boredom may then become infinitely projected toward the whole cosmos. This picture of self is called despair. The milder forms of it would be disappointment, disillusion, and cynicism which is a real temptation for those of us my age and older. 
it's so easy to become cynical because I've heard it all before. And what you promised didn't come true, and I ain't falling for it again. And that's, that's not a way to live, but this is the fruit of, this is what idolatry does to you emotionally. It's more than that, a lot more than that, but I just want to get you to get the flavor of it. And so, when we learn to use our motivational drives to identify our idols, we're getting on the right track. And the most basic question which God poses to each human heart is has something or someone besides Jesus Christ taken title to your heart's functional trust, preoccupation, loyalty, service, fear, and delight? Do you ever say to the Lord, you know, Lord, if you don't give me this, if you don't provide this for me, you probably won't say it out loud because you're a coward like me, but you, you want to say to him, Lord, if you don't provide this, you don't give this to me, I'm walking away. I'm done with you. I've met a lot of people who are done with God because he didn't deliver what they wanted. You know, he's not a genie. He's not a cosmic bellhop. No, God is God. But I find people who, who seem to struggle in that regard uh, with God bringing things in their life that they think. So we have to ask our questions, the motivational question of lordship, who or what rules my behavior, the Lord or some idol. And we often don't get deep enough when we analyze our idol structure. But let me give you in the last few seconds of this message things that can be idolatrous. First, there's power idolatry. Life only has meaning. I only have worth, worth if I, am, I have power and influence over others. Let me repeat that. Life only has meaning. I only have worth if I have power and influence over others. Approval idolatry. Life only has meaning. I only have worth if I'm loved and respected by fill in the blank. Comfort idolatry. Life only has meaning. I only have worth if I have this kind of pleasure experience, a particular quality of life. Image idolatry. Life only has meaning. I only have worth if I have a particular kind of look or body image. Control idolatry. Life only has meaning. I only have worth if I'm able to get mastery over my life in the area of fill in the blank. Helping idolatry. Life only has meaning. I only have worth if people are dependent on me and need me. Independent idolatry, life only has meaning. I only have worth if I'm completely free from obligations or responsibilities to take care of anyone. I don't want to be bothered. Work idolatry, life only has meaning. I only have worth if I'm highly productive and getting stuff done. That's my righteousness. And I feel good when I'm on top of it. And I feel horribly disjointed. You know, so many of us are seeking for balance in life. That, that back in the 
70s and 80s. A lot of the Christian literature I read at that time was talking about being a balanced Christian. You've got to have balance in your life. And finally, after studying the Bible for 40 years, I've come to the conclusion that what balance is is shalom. It's the Hebrew concept shalom. That's when all, everything fits together and makes one whole. Disintegration was when everything falls apart. Integration and shalom is when everything fits together. And the more you worship the Lord, the more you slay your idols, the more shalom you will taste. But not until Christ returns and we leave these bodies and get our new bodies will we ever experience the shalom of Eden again peace rest in his presence well there's a hundred more i probably said enough what about religion idolatry life only has meaning i only have worth if i'm adhering to my religion moral codes and accomplished in its activities Relationship idolatry. Life only has meaning. I only have worth if Mr. or Mrs. Wright is in love with me. Now, I know these touch on, every one of these touch on, get me? They touch on legitimate needs, but they become idols when we over-desire it to the exclusion of God. We resent God because he hasn't given us what we think is our fair due. I walked around for, I don't know how many years of my Christian life, just angry at God. Angry. He said, are you a preacher? Yeah. Stop, doesn't stop me from being a, an idolater and a human being. I was just angry. Why? Because I had in my head shalom. I understood what shalom for me was going to be. And I was sort of like a, a writer and a director of a B-movie uh, in which I played the starring role and all glory was to come to me. And the minute God violated my uh, script and he violated my movie shooting, I got mad. Some of you right now are mad as a wet hen at God. You need to get over that. You need to repent of that. Because there's plenty out there. If you trust in anything other than Jesus, there's plenty out there that will frustrate you and make you mad and destroy you. But that's idolatry. That's what it looks like. That's the motivational hearts. Now, the wonderful good news of the gospel comes next week. And that is Romans 8, the other half of the reality of our nature, of our spiritual experience, brings to us another person. Not only do we trust Christ who is outside of us, but we depend upon the Holy Spirit who is inside of us to apply the gospel to every dimension of our lives. That's coming next week. So let, let, let me let you bleed out on your idol wounds today. <laughs> and then we'll give you a good transfusion of the gospel. Some of you already know how to go to the gospel and get that. You all ought to know how to go to the gospel and get that. That's the only place you can get it. And that's what you really want. 
Who wouldn't want to be forgiven of everything you've ever done and it'll never be brought up to you again at the judgment before the face of God and to be as beloved and uh, uh, approved of and as accepted as God's only begotten son? Who wouldn't want that? Why would you not want that? Because your idols darken your understanding. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, this teaching. We know that it touches all of us in different ways. And if anybody's untouched, Lord, I pray you will deal with that too. And that in mercy you will bring us to your feet. And that we will bow down and worship you and give you glory. For you alone are great. Now, Father, as we continue to worship, may we do so by participating together in one of the biggest aspects of our service. And that is giving back to you a portion of that which you have entrusted with us. None of it belongs to us. It's all yours. And may we return it to you generously, and we pray in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.